what's going on? This is David DeVore with Mesh Mesh. This is the What If We Could show, where every week we ask that burning question, what if we could? And we start to break down assorted topics around artificial intelligence and tech alpha. And so here this week, we've got all four Mesh Mesh partners. We've got Bob, we've got Calvin, we've got Kevin, and we've got myself. Um, and so real quickly, just to kick it off, what we're going to do is... Uh, take a spin through things that we found interesting uh, around, across the week. Um, and I'll just start. I mean, I found this article from Time Magazine, um, and it's what to expect from AI in 2024. Um, Time always does great work. When One of the f first things that they call out is uh, really electricity-hungry data centers. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I find it somewhat hilarious that bitcoin always got like this this massive you know bad name like bitcoin is just burning the environment to the ground but it is bitcoin is is a is a really a fraction of uh of, of what it takes to run ai I, I heard that it took the equivalent of uh it took a the equivalent of multiple bottles of water were needed to run one prompt through OpenAI uh, or something like that. So I found it great that um, you know data centers are roughly one percent of the world's electronic uh, electric uh, electricity use, usage right now, um, and about twenty percent is actually of that is being used for for AI. So I, I find all of that fascinating. The other thing that they call out is that there is a coming trough of disillusionment, which we, we know this, we've talked about it. Um, we've seen it in blockchain and Web3. It, it'll be interesting, you know, how this hits in 2024 um, and what it looks like. And, you know, I think that right now there's a, a sentiment out there that, um, you know, AI is, is like a magic, a magic pill. Right. And, you know, at some point people are going to come down to earth and, and realize, yeah, uh, it's good for some things, not good for other things. It won't solve, you know, world hunger tomorrow. Um, and 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 the nice thing about the trough of the nice thing about any trough of disillusionment is on the other side it starts to be mainstream adoption. So we hope that you all will be around uh, with us when when that comes comes along. Um, yeah, that's also an interesting one too, right? Where the companies that are uh, taking action and building the muscle of of hyper automation with AI are going to compound twenty six, you know, forty, sixty percent uh, reductions in time and cost in the things that they're doing, opening up way more things that they'll be able to chase in twenty twenty five. It'll end up be that'll be the quiet sleeper, right? The organizations that just got started and did that. So it'll be interesting to see how the the trough plays out. Uh, and have the have nots uh, in in January 2025. Yeah, really well. Um, yeah, who who owns the, last the compute? Thing, <laughs> who owns the compute? Yeah, and yeah. you know, Nvidia, chip makers. I mean, we know this, right? I mean, in, you know, um, the correct word is not protocol, but really like the you know the 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 the, the layer zeros and layer one are you know the ones that are are going to survive the trough of disillusionment for sure and, and thrive on the other side. Um, then, you know, the other, the last thing that they point out is, you know, b bigger and bigger models, right? Um, so we've, we've already seen this starting to take shape. 
um, and it's going to be really interesting. You know, we're we're really in terms of the 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 science around large language models and so forth. We're just getting started. It'll be really interesting to see how, um, you, you know, how open source starts to take hold, and so forth. Yeah. So that that was the first one on my list that I was excited about was you know really the the, the predictions for 2024 looking into the crystal ball. Yeah, and the other thing that'll shake out out of the large language models and getting larger and, and new ones, we're seeing it now. They are uh, they they are creating grants to help find the places where these can be applied to, right? So it'll be a little bit of a slower burn, uh, but the the positive effects are, are coming out of that. That there'll be a lot of people chasing a lot of great use cases in the next twenty four months. Yeah, I think. Um... In other news, I think what I'm excited about too is just democratization, more accessibility towards AI for devs and companies and organizations. An example of that is Pinecone releasing their serverless model this week. Um, and at face value, it's nothing necessarily new, but I do think it, it aids in the sense of helping people access these tools faster. Um, newer devs that may not have deep expertise in rag or, or, or retrieval agents that is um you know they still have a bit of a barrier thinking about like how do i configure a a node uh for vectorization and embeddings on pinecone like what is the size like how much is this going to cost hard to forecast serverless is nice because you can get down to unit economics like test it out you kind of know what a call might might cost you it's easier to forecast out um and then just in general i think with their announcement they released some some really interesting information too and just sort of underscore the the importance of of rag um, uh, retrieval augmented uh, generation right and the notion of rag is like taking your data embedding it into a vector database and your agent uh, is able to sort of traverse a different a different sort of model of data right we sort of grew up on two d data structures tables right rows and columns two dimensions right up and down left and right and here comes vector which is three dimensions. So this notion of storing data in, in a big cloud and being able to sort of traverse that and find things that are neighboring and so, uh, similar. Back to the Pinecone announcement, um, a really great chart that they included with their with their post is um, just how uh, how resilient and how faithful results are given RAG tied to different models. So they compared um, GPT 3.5 Turbo, GPT 4, Llama 270B and Mixtral 8x7B. Llama and Mixtral being the open source uh, models that are most prevalent in the space today. Um, GPT 3.5 and 4 being OpenAI. Turns out with well-architected vector databases and RAG retrieval on these agents, GPT 3.5 Turbo is at parity with GPT 4. Mixtral 7B is at parity with both of those, and they all three outperform Llama 70B. They're all above their benchmarks without RAG. Um, with RAG, the exciting part of this, for me anyways, is that another proof point that even lower, lower size models, like 3.5 Turbo, can outperform the big models. And it's also really exciting around the open source side, specifically Mixtral 7B being 10x smaller then Llama outperforms it and on parity with the high horsepower, also high cost 
hosted versions coming from OpenAI. So I think this opens up a huge world of applications in terms of costing for orgs that are uh, looking to implement. I think the kids are blowing up Roblox. Yeah, that's that's exciting. Yeah. No, it's that's all good. Um, yeah, that's that's very exciting. I mean, it's it's fascinating to see how the you know the the front on the vector database side keeps on pushing and i and it's interesting because like i think they're also really aiming at you know cost reduction they they've been handing out you know more free credits now and i think getting getting people on board it's interesting because vector embedding is still such a topic hard to grasp like you said you know going from tables to vectors and changing their thinking unless you've played with similarity search and you're like a netflix or so you know it's kind of a new world for you to dive into um and it's great to see you know how they're kind of trying to push adoption on that end um and speaking of like sort of you know you, you it's more like you know the the, the cost saving adoption um another thing that sort of i stumbled on um this week is stream diffusion so more in sort of the the, the image generation camp and I, I think we all know you know it's kind of hard when you when you use image generation models like stable diffusion right it just takes a very very long time and suddenly what we've seen with like new algorithms like lcm we start, suddenly started seeing real-time things and then up pops this thing on my list which is called stream diffusion and stream diffusion claims and and i i this is absolutely insane if you look at it they claim that using an rtx 4090 and a stable diffusion turbo model they can get text to image with frames per second of 106. So 106 frames per second image generation. And we've already seen tons of things in the space. Like, you know, you can see a lot of touch designer um, artists coming out of the woodwork and, and using this for like real term um, webcam, you know, artistry. But you can also think of it as real time conversion, right? Like in the security space, if you think of, you know, you can be real-time live on a stream and you can look like biden going to back to what has happened with the the audio recording that you know went through the country this week and if you think of all the possibilities what you can do now in terms of absolute real-time transformation because with 160 frames per second for a text to image and 93 with image to image this is now actual real time without distinction so i think that's a pretty intense development that they've put out with stream diffusion and i'm excited to see where that goes from here yeah right, right in time for election season yeah, yeah. It's gonna right, get... in, right in time for election season that's that's right it's gonna get weird the nefarious stuff aside though like it, it's really interesting in the sense of uh scale right so maybe you're not doing 106 frames per second to create video but you're serving 106 simultaneous consumers on a consumer app for generation i think that's really interesting point. to go up lower grade hardware, lower cost, more accessibility, more outreach. Um, and then the other side is immersion is where my mind goes. So think of, um, th there's another uh, great startup called uh, Blockade Labs, been around for a little while, but they do um, generation of 3D panoramas, right? So uh, seam seamless stitching is kind of their their ace, right? So as, they, as those wide pano generative images come around in a 3D panorama, they they connect seamlessly, right? And so you think about what you could do with that, right? AR, VR, and not just a one-time generation of an environment, but that environment changing as you're doing stuff in it. So it's sort of a new take on what is what are the primitives required to create a really immersive experience? It used to be 3D objects, right? High horsepower renders, uh, so it felt real in 3D space, but now you can sort of trick the brain 
I think even more cost effectively by having that environment sort of outside uh, container constantly evolving as you move through 3D space or whatever the experience might be. So that's also really exciting. That's a, that's a great aspect. Yeah. You know, I came across another tool this week too, uh, in a similar vein, but uh, Air AI, it's uh, what they're going after is they're, they're going after customer service automation, uh, I think phone calls, right? And they have this little demo up on, on their site. It's you know imaginary demo of selling, going back to AR, VR. In the demo, they're featuring selling the new uh, Apple headset, right? And as you can imagine a device like that, that's very expensive, it can be um, helpful to have someone answering questions throughout that decisioning process to spend, was it $3,000? And before you pull the trigger on that and help objection handle, help uh, see the value in it. And so this demo goes back and forth where this uh, you know synthetic audio voice is on a call and, it's, uh, and there's a real person on the other side uh, it's asking them questions about, you know, why didn't they purchase, you know, pull the trigger on the, the page when they're, you know, viewing it on online and then trying to, uh, and, and then responding to their uh, objections. And so you could feel a bit of the, if you've gone back and forth with ChatGPT, for example, especially the audio version of talking to ChatGPT Chat and having it talk back to you, you start to feel a bit of the, the similar uh, back and forth, but like really tight cadence, like you would want someone to respond back to you on a call and not, you know, a giant robust answer like you might get out of text form of ChatGPT. And so, you know, was feeling pretty honed in that way and it was interesting to, to hear it go back and forth and, and think about the different applications in customer service and sales funnel process that that could be applied to. And then I also put myself in the seat of, wait, what, I, what if I received one of these calls, right? And would I be upset about that? And, you know, this, this robot is calling me and I have, you know, another thing to deal with. Right. And then I started thinking about it of this person takes this tone a bit in the, uh, in the demo, the real person, I think for the demo and to show that it overcomes that, that person's um, disinterest and objection at the beginning. But I also started thinking about it, like what actually appreciate just talking to a robot and knowing that I'm talking to a robot, but having a productive conversation, right? Not the, calling into, okay, dial, you know, press one or say, say, say your phone number that we've all done in, in dial-ups. And, and then I thought, you know, it would be nice to know that I could drop the, this is, this is me being now putting my, my introvert hat on at the end of a day burnt out and I've used all my extrovert. I could drop the performance that you do on a conversation, right? And the, the, the cordialness, not to be necessarily rude, but just knowing that this other person, person air quotes on the other end of this conversation isn't going to take offense that I'm not, you know, performing in that way for a relationship conversation, but at the same time I can move forward in the discovery of whatever product or service that, uh, it wants to talk about. And I wanted to talk about because I sought it out. So I thought it was really interesting. Uh, I, I think it's without a doubt, we're going to see just a proliferation of this applied to sales funnels and, and customer service. Um, I'm excited to get past those really bad automated customer service uh, experiences though. So and it, let, and let the robots it, and it's come. crazy. Yeah. It is, and it's crazy, right? When you look at that demo and you know, I'm, I'm, I still, I still really want to actually use the tool. I, I tried to sign mm. up and I haven't, I haven't gone there. Right. I really hope that they actually, you know, deliver as they promise. 
I mean, because in, in their demo, they included so many things that we've seen in research papers recently, but not in full-blown action mode, right? Specifically, like emotional interference, uh, interference, which I find is super well played in that demo, right? You can, you can sense that they've yep. managed to get emotional tone into the conversation. And then the other part is like really obviously like back to what we said before like real time right like the fact that there is not a 10 second delay but a you know constructed pause of a second or two and then you get in but yep. it feels human and it's so fascinating that just these two things unlock you know that universe and like what you said right like would you feel comfortable talking to it probably <laughs> you know yeah. and yeah, and, and it also asks a lot of interesting questions for sales. Back to Dave, what you said before, right? Or I think, Bob, what does it look like if when the second conversation comes, right? When we get into going back to RAG and vector embeddings, how does it go from conversation one to three, four, five, six, ten, twenty? Yeah, what I'm <clears throat> I'm really excited. I mean the the combination of those technologies, but like especially vector, right? I mean, there are so many businesses like really outdated, you know, think, think of like shopping for a car part and this like just website that was built in, you know, 1999 or whatever. And you can't like, you just like search and filter and find this part and like, it doesn't match what you need and whatnot. It's, it's just the worst experience. And so you you imagine like taking all those parts and putting them into a vector database and now all of a sudden the whole experience around finding something that you need or making a complex problem come together just it 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 just cracks it wide open. So, you know, and then you put a a person in front of it, you know, hey, I've got a 1994 Toyota Corolla and I need an alternator. Um, you know, and off to the races you go. So the, and they'll never give you any attitude. Like that's the best part of the whole customer. Like there's no bad day for the AI. Like they're always cheerful. <laughs> Maybe not. Though. I saw an article uh, yesterday. They, they trained an AI to be evil and it turns out they couldn't, they couldn't get it to be not evil once it decided to be evil. So it's just <laughs> always evil. Yeah. Depends on that that's feedback a, loop. I want to commit everything in the conversation to Vector because who knows? Yeah, that's a great point. What, what is, I want to touch on one thing that you said there, Dave, which is interesting because you said that those 1990 websites, right, they kind of still don't have it and you're looking at it as hard to, to traverse. And we, we've had similarity surge by way of Vector, like what I said with Netflix before. What has changed now with the wave of AI is that these things have become like with the vector, with the pinecone announcement, like a million times more accessible and a yeah. million mm -hmm. times more cost effective. Right? right. So now this, these things are accessible to the broader masses. And like I said, we're not just talking AI LLM use cases, but just the yeah. fact of storing your data in a multidimensional space has become or be, well, is becoming more commonplace now. Absolutely. Yeah, so that way, that way, the you know the 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 dude who owns the the the, the shop can afford it. <laughs> yeah, he might right. not know what he's talking. He might know not quite know how to get there, but at least at least it'll be more affordable. Yeah, and that way, it kind of you know uh, aligns really well to um, just the notion of uh, aut autonomous and like what what is what are the things that AI can replicate very well as compared to human counterparts, right? 
And if you had to break it down in, one, in a word, the, I think that word is inference, right? I think <clears throat> the special sauce for humans uh, since the dawn of work has been, can you take two dissimilar concepts or two two unconnected things and can you infer what they have in common or what they're, how they're dissimilar? How, why are they important to think about together? And to your model in the 1990 uh, catalytic converter catalog, we were always relegated to technology that required connections between objects, right? Mm -hmm. This alternator goes with this car, this person owns that car, here's our lineage, right? Could never infer the car owner to the catalytic converter without knowing that connection to the car as a bridge, right? And now we sort of, now we can, and AI is able to infer those gaps without the connections being pre-established, which I think, I think that is the ultimate unlock here. Yeah, it's fun. Awesome. What else do you guys have uh, in terms of finds this week that excited you? Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about extensively is, um, one of the things that we've talked about extensively is autonomous systems right and how do you how do you make autonomous systems improve themselves right so um i think uh, meta came out with uh, um you know basically this self-rewarding language model on pytorch uh it's on github and i would you know bob i'd love to hear your thoughts on that because it's it's uh it's fascinating when, and when you think about like how, how do we reward a how do we reward models for doing the right thing you know um and you know and and, and self-improving right yeah so meta actually wrote the paper on an approach for for self-rewarding language models um and then of course like the nerds pick it up right away it seems to be the the theme in the space, right? New new paper comes out. Who can implement um, a uh, a framework around it, or at least an example of it? And that's um, what we're looking at here. And so that's a implementation based off their uh, Meta's PDO paper around the the concept. And in general, uh, one thing that's really interesting about this is just how kind of simple it is to get going, right? It's all sort of Python based. You need uh, you need CUDA. Hardware, not a big deal. Most uh, GPUs uh, should work there. <clears throat> and then, in terms of actually doing it, um, not much to it, right? They're um, essentially doing trials, um, benchmarking it against anticipated outcomes, and then using that to create training data and just creating a flywheel around fine tuning <clears throat> based on basically large scale, large scale tests. Um, and then the PyTorch just sort of makes that makes that sing. Um, as they're sort of building a, a neural network of training against the LLM runs. So just a really cool novel approach. And the thing I like most about it is, again, uh, how accessible it is to, to use it. It seems to be a lot of the benchmarking, a lot of the internal optimization techniques have been sort of guarded, uh, kept behind closed doors as, as industry trade secrets and special sauce. And here we are um, seeing kind of a rapid flurry of drops around how to how to fine tune train uh, in much more interesting ways than just using like hosted solutions to do it. I, I, when I first saw it, the first thing that came to mind was, was tokenized economies, right. And using, using, um, using 
And I don't know if the, I, you know, we've talked a little bit about block, blockchain and where blockchain and AI meet as technologies, but I'm, I'm interested in like, am I imagining that there's something here? Like, is there, is there a tie-in for, um, real rewards in the form of, in the, in the form of, uh, in the form of tokens for completing tasks? And I'm thinking <clears throat> not just training models. I'm thinking real world implementation, right? So complete the task, I'll pay you a, a, a fraction of a uh, fraction of a Bitcoin, a fraction of, uh, of ETH. And then over time that actually improves the model. Yeah, I think I mean, that's a fascinating use case. Yeah. Go ahead. People, people always seem to do a better, things do a better job when they get paid to do it. We'll start there. Imagine that. <laughs> called incentive and that, you know, and then from the like baseline here, you know, rewards being uh, kind of a catch-all for model training, right? It's uh, it, it's a positive a positive outcome, right? And that's what the model trainings seek. It, obviously, success. Failures are just as I think valuable as as the successes. It'd be interesting to in your in your concept here, not just pay for the successes, but also pay for the failures. Yeah, and and, and I think the the opportunity around, um, well, you know, I think we're probably moving more and more and, and, um, uh, moving more and more into, you know, world economies, right. And, and micro tasking, like, so Turk, Turk type tasking, um, both for people, but also potentially between machines. And we've sort of talked about this before that like, you're, you're not going to, a machine is not going to pay another machine with a credit card. Right, like a machine, a machine really needs a digital currency to tr to transact with another digital machine, right? Um, and so it's it's going to be interesting to see how that starts to starts to play out um, as different models and different AI need to work with each other um, to complete and, and with people to complete tasks. And we, you know, we've seen that ourselves, where we're we're coming up against um, tasking that, you know, AI just can't do, right? And so, um, so in our in our workflow, we we then assign it to a person. Um, of course, those people are on payroll, but you know, you could imagine easily assigning it to somebody who's not on payroll via via um, via a, a crypto bounty or crypto reward. Um, so it'll be, it'll be really interesting to start to see how these, how these two technologies come together in that way. Yeah, for sure. The other thing that the, the self-rewarding, uh, paper and, and, you know, first implementation here made me think of was, you know, it's coming off the backs of the end of last year when people into 2023, people were starting to complain about chat GPT getting kind of lazy and doing some prompt engineering to try to incentivize chat GPT to give them answers or give them better answers. Right. And so they're, they're paying fake credits in, in the form of, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you give me the right answer here to chat GPT to you know, do some prompt engineering. And <laughs> so I, I thought that was, it, it's funny. That's, that's, you know, obviously the, the self-rewarding training model is way upstream of that. Um, we talk about prompt engineering at the last mile here with that example. Um, but <laughs> it came up last night. I was trying to get 
I was trying to get something from ChatGPT. I was being I was being lazy and broad with my ask and just hoping it would infer what I was going after and go out to the internet and get it for me. And it didn't. It it, it tried and it said it couldn't. And I said, "What if I give you a cookie?" <laughs> and so it tried again, and then it still couldn't. And then I said, "No cookie for you." And it said, "I'm sorry." But also, I don't need cookies. It said that in a much more robust way. Yeah. I have no need for cookies as an AI with a lot more words to say that. And I was like, all right, yeah. we're the, done here. The, the, this is it's funny. It kind of reminds me, did you see that the, the KitKat um, advertising that came out two days ago? Mm -hmm. it, was like they were, it was like it was just an ad, ad campaign by KitKat where they were saying, you know, Hey, if you want to have GPT perform better, right, then ask it to have a break, right? And then ask the question first, because, you know, <laughs> and they kind of did this whole marketing campaign about have a break first and then do it. You know, maybe you give, give the AI a bit of a pause, but it's really straight something out of, you know, sort of Douglas Adams or, you know, like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxies. You have an AI that just says, nah, <laughs> like, what can you offer me? That I'm gonna do, you know, I can get. I don't need to eat, but you know, can you think yeah. of something else? Find right. me some yeah. extra compute, you know. Yeah, GPUs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the answer yeah. is forty-two. Forty-two. What kind of answer is that? Look, I thought really hard about this. I mean, what mm -hmm. what kind of prompt engineering is gonna come out of you know, what 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 does Super Bowl ads look like this year? This just prompt engineering of like put this. Put this into your chat GPT and see what comes back out. Post here. Yeah, good, good, good luck. Kind of trying to convince your AGI. <laughs> it's like it's an unfair battle between the two, you know. Yeah, I mean, so speaking of alignment problem, uh, the <laughs> you know, OpenAI uh, has announced a, a crowdsourcing team for for governance into its models, uh, and, and so. I, I feel this is, is really interesting. It feels like a really smart move by them to say, hey, we are going to get the public involved in this alignment issue and, and uh, creating AI for all. Uh, of course, we like I want that. They want that. At the same time, they're taking like a ton of heat right now. And, and uh, you've seen Sam Altman like do the global circuit, right? Was it Davos the other the other week? and is is doing everything he can to, to reassure the literally everyone on planet earth that they are I mean, they have a potential antitrust coming up right so yeah I, they, I mean, they when you go that, that hard and you're around just just around the world stumping for your benevolence uh there's yeah definitely a lot of heat directed at them i like it and and it's you know it sounds like funding is coming out of this that they're looking to others to help bring ideas to the table for governance. It does remind me also both the the pros and cons of you know what we've experienced in the uh, the Web3 DAO world and and shared governance. It's not exactly the same what they're doing here, right? But you know there's downsides of trying to coordinate a lot of people together, but there are upsides where you get ideas and concepts and proposals out of nowhere that you would have not been exposed to that are sometimes like really robust and and uh, very thoughtful. So you know, hopefully this brings some really interesting things to the table that they otherwise wouldn't be talking about inside of their global four walls as open AI, uh, or maybe reinforces some, some, uh, lesser known proposals inside of their teams that they get some, some more interest in, take a look at. So pretty, 
uh, yet to yet to see what comes out of this, but very politically interesting as well. Yeah. So the the title of the podcast is you know what the fuck is nightshade? So what what is nightshade? Like let's let's unpack this thing. Yeah, I came across nightshade uh, earlier in the week and came out of a, a team at University of Chicago. Uh, it's their second foray into tooling to essentially fight back against unauthorized access of work, specifically graphical work used in uh, models, in, in model training. So think LoRa models, think stable diffusion checkpoints, and so on. And it, it's off the back of um, another model that they had created called Glaze. Nightshade, what it does is a processing engine, and it it puts over top of an image essentially a invisible marker right through various shades of gray as as i understand it and looked at some examples from from the paper and for my eyes i could not tell the difference between a nightshade affected image and the original image but when it goes through a training model um, obviously the models are looking at very very tight packs of pixels um, to create um, to create the connections within the model itself. And so it sees these sort of in, human invisible uh, manipulated pixels and it doesn't know what to do with it. Insofar as the nightshade model will include um, uh, other other images in this invisible layer, right? So you think you're training on a bicycle, but it's actually a teapot. So it's, it's more of like a, a nuisance uh, creator for folks who might try and use images protected by nightshade in their models. The, question I have for everybody is um, where where do we think this is valuable and also where is it like not valuable I posed a question out on Twitter once I came across it got a lot of mixed reactions to it and I feel like it's um, it depends on the use case that you have in your mind my thought was maybe it's not advantageous for let's say up-and-coming artists to apply nightshade wouldn't it make sense if you were relatively obscure and trying to create a, a network and, and uh, a, a follower group of fans that your model, your your work would be recognizable in a, a potentially any model, right? Wouldn't that help proliferate this, your style um, and actually open up doors to monetize that um, later? Does it... Is it more appropriate for brands to protect their brand? I don't know. What do you guys think? An interesting question. I mean, one of the one of the fascinating things I saw an interview, I think it was last week, where it's mainly about how copyright is handled today. And I think that, that one focused on, on the U.S. more specifically, where there was this case with um, this uh, children's book author. I, I, I forgot the name. Um, and they used uh, AI-generated images for the for the illustrations in the children's book and basically when they tried to sort of you know get their their copyright on it right they came back and said you know because those images are ai generated you cannot copyright anything in that book and so it just becomes straight out copyable and i mean we've we've seen things around we've seen many use cases where if if it's not copyrighted then you know people would just and it becomes successful or whatever right people would just go ahead copy it and you know do a do a copy on Amazon, publish it, and basically push you out of the market. And if that is sort of your primary source of revenue, then I can totally see why to some people that is challenging. So, and the point that I'm trying to make here is that 
while the league while there is no legal backing currently right to kind of to kind of deal with the scenarios where ai is involved and where it is still seen as copyrightable material there are not great ways for you to monetize what you what you said before bob in terms of you know i would love to put my stuff into an ai model but i would also find love to find a way to monetize this so and there's not a great incentive yet for companies like Midjourney or if you look at Dali from OpenAI or whoever to kind of get that split in. But I do think that given given enough sort of public pressure pressure by creators that this could become a feasibility and then we're sitting at the other side of the spectrum where this could actually pose a great opportunity, like you said, right? Like what if you your style sort of influences the model in a way, the model becomes big and so do you. Like how we're currently used to social selling on social becoming has become a big trend, right? So I, as a creator, can use social media to use social selling and to bring my music, my whatever, you know, into the masses. Could a similar motion happen through AI and through models? We, we will see. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's the what well, U.S. Circuit Court ruled that only humans can create copyrighted material. And right. and only humans create can create patents, so an AI can't you know create something that's patentable, which is pretty interesting. And also, you know, you have to, I'm it's on one level I agree. On another level, I sort of look at the copyright law as being kind of archaic um, and not not really like not really and same with patent law, right? And not really in rea and not really in reality in terms of how people create what they create the technology that's creating this stuff um and the speed at which it's happening um you know i thought you know our, our friend mel there at fox led um the creation of uh vault is it vault is that right am i saying that correctly um to basically log media on chain um and create a pipeline for media companies to both monetize their work as well as uh as well as um monetize their uh, and and create authenticity in blockchain we've talked about this a number of times that blockchain is sort of the perfect tool for creating a record of providence um and i think we're going to see more of that I mean, I think that's the, you know, at the end of the day, like that is probably the only good way to say, hey, this is, this is a, a, a work that we own. Um, you can use this work to train a model and you're going to pay us for it um, without it being like endless lines of lawyers and drop boxes and, you know, and, and so forth. So I really was, I was excited to see them take those steps and really excited to see uh, hopefully as it starts to take hold and hopefully we can get them on this podcast to talk about because it's it's really really future thinking and 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 exciting um motion between like where ai and blockchain meet and they're complementary yeah it's called a verify verify fox, what did, what did fox released Ball, verify yeah verify open source protocol right so they released it and it is it is there for everyone to use as a as a standard, like you're saying, it, the ability to work across uh, with without borders here, 
very quickly. They uh-huh. cannot imagine some of the great artists we work with having to trade a Dropbox with 10 images in it to then go put into a model, right? To try to get a couple of dollars. Right. But there's you know massive opportunity. So Bob, you posed this question. I want to revisit the question you posed of the, you know, when is it when is it hindersome? When does it hurt to implement something like Nightshade that prevents derivatives of your work? I I think there's a flip side of this that I'd like to see that would be productive. And and Dave, this is something that you've been working on uh, a, a few different ways too. It will probably have something to show sometime soon here, but the ability to, so imagine an artist applies nightshade to their work. So then they publish their work out there, uh, put it on Twitter, make it super simple, Instagram, and somebody grabs it and, uh, they, you know, start grabbing the daily or weekly posts from this artist, start putting it in a model. Um, maybe it's a model specifically for that artist and style, or it's putting it into a larger model and collecting types of artists. And then because it's got nightshade implemented on it, they think they're training on one thing and this, this artist's work and the graphics in that art. Instead, they get um, handbags and tea kettles and other weird objects in their, their model as it infers it, right? Then you know, is there a process in there where that, that person that tried to you know, take that work and put it in their model, I'm, I'm making a leap of logic here, can effectively receive a prompt or as they try to debug what is going on, they're led to, Hey, this has nightshade. Here's where you can go to this artist and you can one license their stuff. Like you're talking about Dave on a very programmatic basis and super simple or two, here's their trained model. That is, uh, that you can use to create derivatives and through using that trained model, uh, you're paying, you'll, you will pay for it, right? Let's call it a dollar per image that you want to get out of there at high res. And that person is willing, you know, they want derivatives of the work, but they also want to be paid like something. And so maybe I they can have you, the best of both worlds like that. Yeah. It's a, that's actually a very great, it's a great balance. That's, that's a great balance. I'm wondering how the one thing you wouldn't get with that is sort of the discovery through the AI model, but you're also probably not getting that directly, right? I think the artist still needs, or the creator still needs some sort of exposure outside so that, you know, they have yeah. an audience that is aware of the fact that, you know, they're here and you can use that. But once they have that, what you're saying is like a great solution. Absolutely. Am I correct in understanding that Nightshade actually will in some ways poison the model? Right. It's mm-hmm. not just like it, it, yep, it, yeah. it will, it, it is going to con- consume this image and forever more. The model is going to be tainted with the, with, with these, you know, additional images and, and stuff that it doesn't understand. And so anybody who comes and uses the model in the future potentially comes across some sort of insanity that they don't understand. Right. So I, yeah. Well, it's it's going to be less of a. I I think it's going to be less of a, of a bad effect on the actual user, but just more of like a negative reinforcement on the model in general. It's more like the the model gets it's 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 less of a poisoning per se, and more of the model sees these images, right? Gets a negative gets negative feedback from it, and so the model kind of learns to avoid images to like that. So basically, mm-hmm. if it comes across the same image somewhere else it would kind of try 
you know, like, spook and run, run away if you want to put it in human terms. It's like yeah, buying yeah. a knockoff part for your car, right? So you, you go to eBay and you buy a an almost an almost OEM part, right? And it, it works for a while and then it breaks, right? And so the quick the quick fix there is to replace that part uh, for your car. So all to say, like there could be some poison in a model. You may not realize it for a while because you're not actually traversing that part of the space. Right. Right. You didn't ask for the bike yet. So you didn't know it was actually a teapot until you do. And then at that point, you might swap that model out for something else that has higher grade of credibility. Right. Yeah. So Nightshade is not a perm- is not a permanent solve here because I think almost instantaneously people are going to be working to, to circumvent it. Right. Folks who, who want to sort of like use unlicensed work in their in their models. And there's plenty um you know so and, and universe chicago calls that out uh as well it's just a interesting take on what they're calling an offensive measure against uh unlicensed use um and where like glaze is a is a defensive mechanism folks that go on the offensive are always circumvented by the defense at some point in the future right so it's this cat and mouse game going back and forth there you go let's, yeah, it's let's define that really go quick ahead. right so so glaze is a defensive is is going to give you the ability to say that is my work that you that you used over there so now i have to go monitor and and claim right and try to make a claim and maybe that claim involves court and in lawyers right that's pretty hard offensive with nightshade is i'm gonna I'm muck up your model when you try to rip my data and it's gonna it's gonna make your life pretty hard so even just to really quick give the even broader example of Take Midjourney. Midjourney is I'm not saying they're a bad actor; they're a large actor. So Midjourney says we're training uh, the next version, and, and we got all these images. We've got them from lots of different places, and we're going to go tr- do a model run. Right? They do a training run. They then, of course, they're going to come back and run that against some baselines. And now all of a sudden, their baselines are, aren't passing like they were before. But they've just threw in a whole clump of data, right? Which included maybe some of these nightshades. So some of the the, the um, the standards pass and some don't and then what do you do you you throw out the whole set of data and then like go try to find so it really is i think poisoning in that in that mm. way right when you start thinking about in, in training runs like i wouldn't want to be the data scientist on the other side having to figure out what is going on with my training runs there's a there's a science fiction novel here right which is like in 2052 you know 2052 all like all of the models have been combined and running everything and nightshade shows up and just destroys us <laughs> lurking in the system i think you're on uh, new york times bestseller here i come i mean if you yeah, do game that out, right, writing fiction books <laughs> if you game it out i mean and you have that perspective in mind as a model builder i you know nightshade probably already did this job even if very few people ever apply it just the notion that it's there would would yield the the desire to only use great inputs into your model because mm-hmm. you could totally kneecap yourself sometime down the road real, realizing later that you have nightshade in your model which devalues it for consolidation up later right there's going to be a massive economy here just super massive economy around trusted highly credible well curated data to model mm-hmm. against, I, th- I think there's something there. Um, yeah. I love to, love to just touch on 
kind of go around the horn even around this notion of like what is copyrightable what is patentable i mean i kind of take the opposite view here in terms of um kind of what the legal structure is saying um i'd point to like music being a great corollary for for precedent you know uh like marvin gay versus robin thick and pharrell uh recently mm-hmm. around blurred lines right like the, the songs are not directly similar there's no plagiarism at all but the suit claimed that blurred lines um use the same instrumentation and ultimately have the same with the gay estate right and they i think they won seven or eight million bucks in that case and so that's that's an interesting corollary like it was not plagiarized it wasn't based on it at all uh, save for subconsciously of the mm-hmm. creator against something they were influenced by um you know if you if if you built a mechanism where ai spit out something patentable on the other end i would argue that that process itself is patentable right we've always used tools to create the next layer of tooling right why would we prevent the patentability of an outcome because we use a specific type of tool in the mix right that seems highly political to me very very political Hmm. um and you should be able to protect that process the only difference is the acceleration and speed here of innovation so is that the real purpose behind a law such as that is to is to pump the brakes right those that have access can can now rip out patents much faster than those that don't understand it that seems to me like competition hmm. i don't know i mean i mean it's 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 interesting right like just to go to the nightshade case before i answer your, your question nightshade is kind of a delaying factor for you know sort of regulatory frameworks to kind of make sense of it all and find something that they can put in place. And that sense, it just might, you know, give a bit more time, you know, so that, that there can be a framework of copyright updated, whether that's going to be a good one is a, is a totally different question. Um, but to your question on copyrightable, I, I mean, I kind of tend to agree with you that, you know, hindering technical evolution you know, is not always a great idea, right? And so we need to find a great balance. We kind of want the evolution. On the other hand, if you're if you're on the other side of it, and if you are the artist, and now you find yourself in a position where, you know, you've been trying to make your livelihood, and now your entire data has been taken without your consent, and now someone else is making money with it and not compensating you for it, right? Like, I also completely empathize with that position, like, because like what alternatives are you given as an artist right now or as a creator right now to continue down a path that you know allows you to make money other than for example then go back and say okay cool you know i'm going to create physical work and go back to galleries and you know find other other channels of distribution and sales yeah i mean i think there's a a a, a misnomer here where folks think the model provides a legal proxy protection buffer against what could be argued as a copyright infringement, right? So the Marvin Gaye, Robin Thicke, not the same song, right? But they're close enough. It's on the creator to ensure that they are not violating copyright, no matter the tool that's Mm -hmm. sitting in between, right? Like Pharrell and Robin Thicke use soundboards, right? And Procreate or uh, Pro Tools or whatever, right? Like you're not blaming Pro Tools for that. Mm -hmm. Same way AI, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's, and your point around the, the children's book or whatever, 
you know, there's a couple things that may have happened there, right? I think I have a hunch of what happened, which is they said, create me a, probably programmatically, create me a picture of a forest, right? In the style of this person, right? That is not something you should do as a creator, right? That is copyright infringement. That, you know, that is something that is clearly a tort, just like, you know, worse than the Robin Thicke, uh, Pharrell, because I don't know if that was intentional or not. It's just close enough that it violated the copyright. If you're intentionally doing it, I think the laws are that we have on the books today probably handle this already, right? I don't know. Yeah, if so it's, it's actually the same that same thing like with the New York Times case, exactly. right? Like what you're what you're saying essentially, which where, where also the tech side is making the case and say like this tool is not intended for this use, right? And they are arguing that that you know you. They have artificially constructed cases where using the tool resulted in the original or like a similar writing than the New York Times article being produced. And like you said, right, the, the tech fund is always like, well, you're not supposed to do that. That's, you know, all the terms of, of service say it's a violation, right? They said it was a bug. Yeah, they said it, that it was a bug that they're working on and shouldn't happen. Yeah, for to, yeah, and, to and, be and, able. But to... after the side, I think that the lawyers took the side of taking like you know unfair use basically of the tool. It's kind of like suing the library to me, right? Hmm. It's like, hey, this architect stole my design, right? And they got it from the library. We need to shut the library down. They're peddling copyrightable information, right? I I just think like every case is unique, and intent is clear in a, in a lot of these cases, right? And, but ultimately, I think we need to put the onus on the creator that you have to double check your work to make sure it's not infringing on copyright, just like you would have mm -hmm. done anyways if AI didn't exist. Can you? It's can interesting. You, how, how far can parody get you, right? Because <laughs> you can create parody of something in the style of, and that's copyrightable. As long as it's funny, SNL is copyrighted. It's okay. <laughs> Look, I, as it's AI, all for the lulls. As AI accelerates everything in our life, one of the things that will also accelerate is the ability to sue somebody. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, you know, if you fly too close to the sun, you're going to fall into it. I think you got to just have to be ultra careful and still act with, with intent mm -hmm. of credibility and benevolence and, and, and create using mm -hmm. a... Uh, a positive view of the law against trying to circumvent it instead. Yeah, and I really, I really like your library example, and I want to just touch on that for one second here. It's like if OpenAI were to be a public good that is accessible to anyone theoretically for free, right? That might change the scenario a little bit, right? Because going back to your library case, I can go in, or let's go Wikipedia is an odd example, but something that's publicly accessible, you can go, you can take, you can you can use it, right? And then it's on you. Um, if it's a company that obviously has a you know financial interest in you know selling this back to their customers, I think the case is slightly different, right? In that case, you might argue, do they need to you know take a bit of a different stance? But OpenAI is a foundation for the good of all humankind, right? And so, what if we make a little money along the way? Yeah. Well, hundred million here, there is <laughs> Dave. I got a question for you. You're rocking your Adobe hat there, if I'm not mistaken. So I create an image. I use Photoshop. I create an image. I copyright it as part of a company even. Why, why is that allowed? Why, why that's a tool, right? Why are we, why are we cracking down on tools all of a sudden? 
Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't hand paint that or put it together or rotoscope it or whatever other way. I used Photoshop to do it. Why was that? Why is that allowed? Because Photoshop, because Adobe's not going to sue you to do. You know, at the end of the day, it, it's really like, do you have a shotgun to stand on the hill and protect whatever you own? Like that, and that, and Marvin Marvin Gaye, it's a state. There, you know, they had a shotgun. They're like, oh, let's go, let's go sue Robin Thicke, right? Um, if if it was a jingle from like our friend Domino, you know, uh, like Domino doesn't have a big enough shotgun, you know, he just does, and and so it really, it, it I think it really does at least, and that's why I think a lot of this stuff is kind of archaic because it really does come down to the like, do you, do you, do you have enough money and a lawyer who will take it to go, you know, get into it with somebody, mm -hmm. right? And, and you know that it's kind of arbitrary I mean, and that's you know and that's why i think uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer like all providence should be on chain because it shouldn't be arbitrary it's it shouldn't it should be binary right not and it should it should just be like uh, yes no not like oh i've got enough money to you know get a lawyer and go sue you right so you know at, at the end of, i ag i agree uh but at the end of the day adobe's not going to sue sue their creators bad for business <laughs> here's a, a question back to you kevin i mean <clears throat> we're going after open ai for torts on copyright like why doesn't adobe own the copyright to the image you created in photoshop yeah right because ways you're going to blame the tool for copyright tort it would make sense that they would also own the copyright since they're clearly the central entity here and I think what's obvious, obvious here is they're not. The creator used mm. the tool, so we can't blame or give credit to the tool for any of it. It's the human well, use. The difference is, though, that, that Adobe hasn't used other creators for their tool to exist, right? So that's the argument. But I, I get your point, and I think I think the argument is, is on the right side of history, potentially. I mean, I don't know, though. They have, you know, background fill. I don't know if you use the AI fill tool True. in... Uh, yeah, how how does Adobe deal with that in terms of sort of their policy? I'm actually really curious. Well, they they does also Adobe have put Adobe, out a the about whole that? world of Adobe stock images, right? So like mm -hmm. they already have license for lots and lots of creative, true. You know that they can that they can apply, right? So, um, and I, I think I've I, did I I've seen uh, I I'd have to go back and see who it was that did a deal with with Getty and, and others, right? But um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's, it, it, you know, back into back, back to the conversation of having good, good models and good training. I think, I think that's, that's where it's all, it's all gonna, a lot of, unless the, the open source models are the, you know, wild, wild west, but you know, these sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the big tech is going to be, you know, forced into a position of using licensed content right so talking about the having a big enough shotgun to defend your hill calvin the you know open or no, uh, adobe, adobe came out and said hey if you're an enterprise customer and you use our generative tools and you get sued we got you we'll foot your legal bill right i'm sure there's some limits on that but they they mm -hmm. already said to their enterprise customers they're most valuable we got you don't worry get in there and start making rainbows and unicorns and in castles like they're really good uh, video spots that they're running on national TV, right? That, so that's, that, so they're, they're 
ready to put up the Dukes and that's how they're moving forward. They're they're ready to be litigious. It's not like they haven't done that before. I think Mm -hmm. the the thing I wanted to bring up to answer the, the underlying question, Bob, is that what, what I think we'll see one flavor of it will be a lot of people arguing to prove that what is created was the tools used to create something were not AI when they go to patent. They're going to say, that's not AI. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. That's, you know, just like a a predictive text inside of Google Docs, inside of Word Docs, been around for a couple of decades. That's not AI. We're just like, would you consider that AI jury? No, you wouldn't. Of course not. That's that's basic. So are the tools that we use. They're just basic. Now, let me show you what AI really looks like. And then they point to something that's heading towards agi. That's what AI is, Jerry. That's what is going to be, that's what I would do. That's how I would argue it is I didn't use AI tools. They're yeah, not AI it. tools. It wasn't AI, I just used math. It's totally different. Mm-hmm. It's math. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Like, what, what kind of process are they going to put in place for you to prove that? Like, do you need to like record yourself while doing it for at least half an hour? Or like, yeah. you know, yeah. how is it ever it's, going to work in practice and at scale? So, where does it end? It's a human and, reviewer. And, yeah. You know, it just to kind of wrap a bow on uh, this maybe. So like Adobe generative fill, right? Like doesn't mean they don't, the argument I'm going to present here is they don't need to have compromised models or shady models, right? If you had a picture of Mickey Mouse in Photoshop and you deleted one of his eyeballs and then did a generative fill on Adobe, it would fill it in, right? Because it's using the context of the image you already, which was copyright tort put into the tool. It will fill it in for you that becomes really mucky, right? Mm-hmm. Adobe didn't train on unauthorized data, but it's smart enough to know what was missing in the image and it filled it in. So are they liable? Hmm. Well, it's, right. it's interesting. I've been just reading through sort of their, their terms of service and stuff. And it's kind of interesting what Adobe says themselves, right? I mean, one they say on Firefly, they say it's trained on Adobe stock images only, openly licensed content and public domain content. Um, and that's why they say that Sorry, my Siri just jumped on. Did you hear me talking? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and then they say, you know, that um, that it's designed to be safe for commercial use. And then if you look on the other side of it, um, they say, you know, be respectful of third party rights in their end consumer um, license agreements. They say using Adobe's generative AI features to create content that violates third party copyright, trademark, privacy, or other rights is prohibited, obviously, right? And then this may include, but is not limited to entering text prompts to generate a third party brand logo, uploading an input, a reference image that includes a third party's copyrighted content and so on and so forth. So they've kind of protected themselves from both angles, right? It's interesting. The first statement is, okay, we only used our own stock to train, right? And so that's why it's safe for commercial use. So adhering to all of the enterprise customers, what we said before, and also on the other side of the consumer, they say, you know, just sorry, you know, don't, don't produce copyrighted stuff. And I, I'd say Adobe actually did a pretty good job of kind of protecting themselves in that way and putting themselves in a very strong position, I would say, that is probably stronger than someone like a mid-journey, right? You know, I think mid-journey is a way weaker position if it ever gets to, to court now in the short term to just survive that. Yeah. What's old is new what again. you think? It's, it's the old um, guns don't kill people, kill, people kill people argument. Uh, it uh, works. It has worked. So I don't know what else they can do. I mean, clearly they're acting with with good intent. So we are 
at the top of the hour. Um, didn't didn't actually get into you know conversation around um, employees with, or companies without employees, right? Which I think is a great topic for an, another day. But this has been this has been fun. Really great going through the news and the sort of hot hot stuff going on um, over the past week or so. And you know, thank thank you all very much, and and have a great night. Thank you. Thanks. Talk soon. Thanks. Bye.